Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello and welcome back to Vice and Easy. Just wanted to thank you all for the kind comments, for the follows, for the likes. You can find me everywhere at Vice and Easy Podcast. Tell your friends. So thank you again for subscribing and getting this podcast growing. It really means a lot to me because as we are wrapping up the end of season two, you know, I don't know what I want to change for season three or do I want to go back and record some episodes, some like really, really, really good episodes from season one and season two again. So who knows what the future of this podcast may hold. But let's get into it because this week we have an interesting episode, not the strongest episode in season two, but I don't want to say a fun episode. I don't really know how to describe it because neither does the IMDb synopsis know how to describe it. This is what they say. The team is assigned to protect a renowned poet who has come to the U.S. seeking political asylum. With sexy Carmen in the mix, things get complicated. Now, as we learned very early on this episode, Carmen is one of our guest stars, Bianca Jagger. Now, we open up this episode at the airport, just looking around. Very sexy airport. It actually is, in fact, was, in fact, filmed at the Miami International Airport. We see very stylish Bianca Jagger. In this episode, let's refer to her as Carmen, stepping out with a lot of accessories. It is clear that it's very a very different era to fly in because today, with all the metal and accessories, you have to take them off, go through the metal detector, put them back on. It would be a pain in the butt. Shoes. Ex- try explaining to the people in the 80s smoking in the airport, as we'll get to at the end of this cold open, about what we have to go through now. And the only way to get around that kind of is TSA PreCheck or Nexus uh, Sentry or Global Entry, where basically the government has your irises and your fingerprints on file so that you can avoid taking your shoes to the airport. And I say this as someone who will happily renew her nexus as soon as it comes up because that thing has changed the way I fly. (laughs) Not that I fly that much, but just a little bit of added pleasure in life is really worth the 50 bucks it cost me. And I guess, you know, selling my soul to the government, having them have all my information on file, but they're going to get it one way or another. I already did 23andMe, so I'm already in there. Let's get back to the episode. I want to say Gina and Trudy look very stylish. I want to say maybe they are dressed as flight attendants. They're wearing not super tight, but tailored gray suits with little brooches on them. And then we meet the star of this episode. So this is Hector Sandoval, played by Byrne Piven, not Latino, Jeremy Piven's father. So from Chicago. I know Jeremy's from Chicago, so I'm assuming his father has some kind of Chicago connection. So I'm assuming maybe Polish in the background, maybe German. This is the introduction to his character, and I died laughing. Clip one. I didn't enjoy your life story. (laughs) Boring. (laughs) But you are not boring. Only your life story is boring. I love this guy already. He kind of reminds me of my dad, not in many ways, but kind of in just like that unfiltered you know, doesn't like boring people way. And I think just like most people get like that, the order they get where they just don't have time for it. Or if, you know, they've had an interesting life story, they just want to be able to share that with someone else. And so I died when we got introduced to him. Then as he meets the Vice Squad, he doesn't really want to hear about the safe house. He's, you know, not really about that. He's come to Miami on his way to Washington to testify in front of Congress, but what's going on in his home country, which the episode never refers to. We can garner a few hints from the episode 
Latin American country, possibly Central American, going through a civil war, lots of expatriates um, living in Miami. So it could actually, unfortunately, um, in the 80s, we haven't narrowed down to a few countries. I'm assuming El Salvador, but they're not saying it by name, which I guess, you know, smart for the writers because it could be a little tricky. And it's, you know, especially when you're ignorant on a topic, you don't want to act like you know everything. But a lot of what they're saying has also rung true for many other countries, not only in South America, Central America, and the Caribbean, kind of within that 20th century period of revolutions and independence. And, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. And before we get depressed with the overarching theme of this episode, let's have some fun, because you know what I wanted when I first came to America? The same thing Sandoval wants. Maybe your television is better here than back home. I know this is the most first world problem thing I'll ever say, but the fact that we didn't have satellite TV and my parents were very insistent on never getting satellite TV because they would say they knew people who had it and when it would rain, it would cut out. And okay, to be fair, living in Toronto, it's not exactly, you know, even weather all the time. So there was a lot of acclimate weather and... It is true that when I would go to other people's houses to watch satellite TV, it would cut out a lot. But especially when you don't have access to programs because they can't be aired in Canada until they finish airing in the States. And it is so frustrating. I know it's on such a minuscule level as we're talking about civil war and we're talking about puppet regimes and dictatorships. I'm going to complain about not having satellite TV growing up. And I had a few American channels so I could watch unfiltered American shows. So a lot of times in Canada, I'm sure this is true with other countries as well. There's simulcast. So let's say if I'm going to age myself here, but CSI is airing on CBS and then CTV has picked it up in Canada, they will play the same episode premiering live, but they will sub out the commercials for Canadian commercials. Same thing, I believe. I think this would also happen with the Super Bowl. And then, so let's say you want to get around that. So I'm not going to watch CTV. I'm just going to go to the actual channel CBS airs on. No, they're able to simulcast it on both channels. So you get the CTV feed and not the CBS feed. Sometimes when they wouldn't air it at the exact same time, you could get around and you can watch the American air um, airing. But yes, this is one of the traumas of my childhood of not having American programming when I wanted the most. Same thing, like whenever I'd have access to a satellite TV, it was for sure Comedy Central because we had the Comedy Network, which was cool, but it was more stand-up than weird, irreverent cartoons. Um, and especially like a lot of the shows back then at night, we didn't get and MTV for sure, even though MTV was always kind of lesser than you just want to see what they have on the other side. Uh, yes, this is the trials and tribulations of my hard won childhood in Toronto, Ontario. <laughs> but yes, I could totally understand the first thing I would do if I were coming from a country. I'm like, where, what's, where's the TV? First thing I would do in the hotel is put on the TV because I want to see all the cable, all the channels that I don't have access to in Canada, let alone, uh, at that time, third world country. I digress. Back to the episode. So we did see Bianca Jagger walking through the airport looking amazingly stylish. And we see another guy following, getting off the same flight as Sandoval. Now, we hear the same guy 
mentioned that these are all my diplomatic papers, blah, 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 blah. Then him and Bianca, or Carmen, as I said, I would refer to her and I totally forgot. Carmen meet up and he hands her a gun. Interesting. So I would think he was able to get this gun on the flight due to these quote unquote diplomatic papers and then thereby give it to Bianca Jagger. So keep that in mind that Carbon now has a gun. Then as Sandoval is leaving the airport, he is, I don't want to say swarmed, but I want to say there's like eight or 10 reporters there. But guess who's also a reporter? Carmen. So the same woman is now posing as a reporter. Now... As we get to know Sandoval a little bit more in this episode, we learn that he loves the ladies. So I think this was her ploy to get closer to him. And she even asked him a question. How does it feel to be free, Mr. Sandoval? Beautiful. Beautiful. I would like to talk to you at greater length. My dear, I am all yours. Okay, that's enough. Step aside, please. Come to the museum at the reception there. I see you. Now, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Why would a man with this kind of security detail be inviting random reporters to receptions? Yes, we're going to get into that a little bit more after the intro. And so we meet back at this beautiful safe house that is incredibly 80s. Not only are there glass blocks, there is one scene where the back of Sandoval's wheelchair kind of like a lilac, matches Crockett's shirt, which matches the paint on the kitchen cabinets and wall. Amazing. This house is gorgeous. Not too gaudy, a little bit gaudy, but perfect. And so why is the Vice Squad looking after this guy? And so when Tubbs, Zito, and Switek, Crockett is not there in the first couple scenes. He is Alluded to being in court, man, that is all we hear of it. And then he just pops back in later on the episode. I tried looking online to see if there was something going behind the scenes. Who knows? It kind of seems like this episode was a little bit jumbled, maybe getting on to like the last couple episodes of the series. Um, And especially back then, like the timelines were a lot tighter for network television. So maybe they just had to kind of like churn and burn this episode out. Maybe Don had a prior commitment or he got injured. No idea, but... We so Crockett does not join us for a little bit. So yeah, why is Miami Vice watching this guy? Wouldn't that be a social? A, uh, oh my God, a Secret Service job, or wouldn't that be an FBI job? Like, why are they tasked with it? And they joke that maybe it's because they're so efficient, and inconspicuous, and kind of as they say that, it pans to like the sniper on the roof and the armed gunman at the door of the safe. Well, they are putting the safe in safe house. Let's put it that way. And then as they're talking, they ask a very good question. Why would anyone want to kill a poet? Why would anybody want to kill a poet? Maybe they don't like his iambic pentameter. Sandoval's not your Joe Everest poet. I mean, he's, he's waiting for a phone call from Stockholm. Nobel Prize, you know? And as we get into the safe house and we talk a little bit more with Sandoval, we find out, yes, he is a poet, but he's more of an outspoken political critic. And in his country at the time, that is not something they were supportive of. He actually wrote this beautiful political manuscript And unfortunately, the government burned it right in front of him. But he says, fear not, everything is still up here and points to his brain. And 
that the words that he wanted to express and the stories that he wanted to tell are still with him, even though the government was censoring him. Because of his clout that he is able to garner not only from expatriates and refugees from his home country, but people abroad and activists abroad, he is very much a target. And Castillo does warn Sandoval not to go out in public, and he doesn't want him to go to any of the public events in Miami. And you know what? I really like Sandoval's reasoning for declining that offer in this next clip. Save your personal appearance for Washington. No. To address a congressional committee is my duty. To appear here in Miami is my pleasure. I want to see my friends. Also, it is alluded to, as much as him and his daughter are butting heads over this, it is alluded to that he is, well, it's confirmed, that he has just spent a year in jail as a political prisoner. So obviously there's even more incentive for him to want to go out and have fun. So in this case, I feel both for the daughter and I also feel for him that, yes, obviously she's worried about his safety, but on his side, you only have one life to live and you should be able to enjoy it tenfold, especially when you've just had that freedom taken away from you. So let's let him have a little bit of fun, shall we? Now, where's the TV? Wrestling, yes? Cartoons? Ah, man after my own heart. Now, remember the gentleman we mentioned in the airport who was giving Carmen the gun? So we now see him roll up at this palatial estate that, because there was an American flag and a mysterious unknown country's flag, we're supposed to assume is a consulate. Now, I live in Los Angeles, California. County of Los Angeles has around 15 million people. The city of Los Angeles has around 5 million people. The consulate for Canada, and I'm aware that there are other consulates in the city that are bigger. There, I've driven by the Thai consulate, the Mexican consulate. Um, the Korean consulate in Toronto is super nice. It has this big yard. The only consulates I've had to go to, the U.S. consulate in Toronto, which is just this ugly... 70s era, not even red brick, it's like kind of gray brown brick, nothing, no facade, no yard, nothing. Two ferrets on like a major thoroughfare in Toronto. And then here in Los Angeles, I've had to go to the Canadian consulate, which is a tiny office in this big building in downtown on the fourth floor. I'm aware that Canada has a small population, but still, really, we have at least 30 million people. I'm sure this country, you know, probably has a similar population. And they have this giant palatial consulate in Miami. So, like, obviously, it's a little bit exaggerated. So that just made me laugh a lot because I was like, wow, I wish my consulates could look like that. Absolutely not. (laughs) In real life, it's on Star Island. Imagine you just have to go get like your Nexus renewed and you have to go to this consulate on Star Island. You're like, wow, what am I? Oh, what am I getting myself into? Oh, too funny. And now at this amazingly palatial consulate, so the guy and another guy are kind of arguing about what's going to happen with the state of their country, blah, blah, blah. And you just see this guy walk out with two duffel Too funny. Now, let's speak about this unnamed country. This is actually a very interesting argument. This is a much bigger argument than this episode had the 
bandwidth for. And I think that's totally fair. Again, we're dealing with 47 minutes, possibly, in network TV in 1986. But they bring up some very good points about the loyalty you have to your country and the need to support your people. And then how deep the corruption is, is that you don't even trust any dollar that could pass through the hands of a corrupt regime. And I think it's really interesting in this conversation that I'm going to play next. Because the money ends up with the guerrillas. Escucha, hombre, don't you understand? That money ends up for medicine for the people in the villages. Who also end up with the guerrillas. The guerrillas at least offer the peasants something. Yes, they offer them a choice. Join us or hang from a tree upside down. They are not democratic. Oh, man, this is incredibly tough because I'm trying to articulate this in the best way. I am no expert. And again, this storyline is an amalgamation of different political events that happened in the 1970s, 1980s. But he's not wrong in that when a regime is that corrupted, support is leveraged in ways that are not fair. But I don't want to dismiss everything that his daughter is saying because it turns out him and his daughter are alike in many ways and they share similar views. They just might be a little bit more far apart when it comes to their understanding of how the government and the rebels really work in this next clip. I edit a small newspaper for political emigres. I'm against the government. If I still lived down there, they would have disappeared to me long ago. You think you'll ever go back down there? Maybe after the Civil War? I don't think there'll be anything left. Oh, man, that is really heartbreaking to hear. But unfortunately, that is the reality, is that even if the country can rebuild after a Civil War, things are never quite the same. That's really sad. On a happier note, let's talk fashion because we are going to a gala. So Sandoval, again, he is just so stubborn. I love it. He wants to ride with a top down a convertible. Again, Vice has to explain like, no, this is for your own safety. You're going to be lying down. And they are able at the end of the day to get him to lie down. They put his wheelchair in the car with Zito and Switek, And he rides in the back with Tubbs and his daughter. And this technology confounded me in 2006 so in 1986 i would have been screaming where the convertible automatically like the top automatically comes up all the way to the front yeah i remember seeing that in 2006 i was like oh my god like the future <laughs> and when we get to the gala there are so many looks we got gina in like a structured black tube dress with a silver cuff and a guy next to her with frost with a frosted mullet like frosted tip mullet we got lots of purple dresses we have carmen once again returning onto the scene looking beautiful with a really dark red lip diamond earrings and a very um form-fitting but still shoulder pad inspired white dress his daughter is looking super cute in a pink tube dress with like a structured front and with long chain link drop earrings with i believe a little bit of diamonds at the bottom 
Tubbs is in a tuxedo. And so a gentleman appears at the art gallery because I am bad at relaying information to you. I forgot to tell you that he was actually outside of my favorite consulate ever, kind of doing a little bit of spy work. We see him kind of looking outside at the consulate. Then we see him get in his car. Now he's at this gala and is old friends with Sandoval's daughter. So this is very interesting. And of course, Sandoval, ever the flirt, chatting up all the women he sees. Now, originally, Tubbs wanted him to stay underneath, I believe it was a bulletproof blanket. He again protested and slapped Tubbs away, which is very funny because there's a few little slaps within the episode. He tries to touch Trudy's leg. He gets a little slap. Same thing with Tubbs. Tubbs tries to protect him. He gets a little slap. And then Carmen finally makes her move, sits down to Sandoval and butters him up really well in this next clip. If I'd be too old... At your age, a man is just beginning to be sexy. It's your power over the word that I find so exciting. Since Tubbs the de facto bodyguard in this situation, Tubbs recognizes this woman from the airport. He's kind of, you know, placing that she was the reporter, that he invited her back. So he's keeping a close eye on her. She, however, is not being super discreet. She does have a gun kind of hidden under her dress. So once... Tubbs sees the slow move for the gun. He runs over, screams out gun, and as she's about to fire at Sandoval, he fires at her, kills her. She dies in the daintiest fashion. <laughs> Please go look at the gallery at viceandeasypodcast.com because you just see her lying on her side and her head is up and then all of a sudden her head falls down and she slowly straightens out one of her legs. Like, it's the daintiest way to die. It is hilarious. But she looks beautiful Bianca Jagger, always a stylish woman. After the shooting, next morning, this is the scene I mentioned where the paint, turns out it's not the cabinet, but the paint behind Crockett, Crockett's undershirt, and Sandoval's wheelchair all kind of match. They're all like a very similar shade of purple. Sandoval's freaked out. He asked for a gun. Naturally, Crockett and Tubbs aren't really willing to play ball with this, but gotta love the way he asks. I've been thinking. I need a gun. You need a what? Pistola. Bang, bang. <laughs> and at this time, Tubbs is asking Sandoval if he's worried at all about her, his daughter, um, his daughter's safety. And, you know, and has Blanca been known to do this? And he says, yeah, whatever. Like, Blanca's been out late before. It's not really a big deal to him. So when they finally get her in the door, she's still in the same dress she was from the night before from the gala. And she's with a guy. And the guy is held by Zito and Switek getting questioned. Now, before all that kind of questioning can go down, Sandoval recognizes him, says that he's one of his former students. So again, this guy is positioning himself as a friend of the family, one of Blanca and also one of Papa, sorry, Hector Sandoval. So keep that in mind. Again, Blanca, very feisty like her father. So she's chatting up Tubbs while Guerrero and Sandoval, her dad, sorry, Hector, are talking outside, reminiscing about old days. Then when Tubbs kind of brings up questions regarding her safety, she pulls a fast one on Tubbs in this next clip. I'd be wrong if I thought that your concern was not merely official, but also personal. Could get that way. Maybe after this is all over. Oh? What'd you have in mind? Casual sex? Romance? 
Interesting that Tubbs does not respond to that. But, uh, girl, I'd say get both options if you can get it, because Tubbs seems like quite a romantic guy. Now, onwards with the story. Gina and Trudy, after the whole Vice Squad gets a little bit more information on Guerrero, they're tasked with watching him. They go to a very interesting party at a hotel, which, number one, I love the exterior of this hotel. The interior gets even wilder. This must be a set. The outfits are wild. I love the girl in the blue bikini with what looks to be a Great Dane with this this giant dog walking through a very narrow passageway at this hotel bar that's inside. Again, you're in Miami. You would figure that you want to be outside, but I think this is just for cinematic purposes. It's inside. While Guerrero is chatting up another girl at this bar, there's some wild outfits. I pointed out the white and black print outfit, and then... There's one out of two Cancun songs in this episode. As Gina and Trudy are surveilling, Feel It Again by Honeymoon Suite is playing in the background in this next clip. We are a man of leisure. Yeah, well, he certainly doesn't lead a lonely life, huh? If memory serves me correct, this is the second honeymoon suite that I can recall being on Miami Vice. I believe the first one was New Girl Now. And they are from Niagara Falls, Ontario. Hence the name Honeymoon Suite because Niagara Falls, I don't know if it still is, but it definitely was a big honeymoon destination. So as they're surveilling Guerrero, they see two goons with very big guns. Get him. Point at him. Gina and Trudy's fire scream out Miami Vice, but they're on like this. They're they're up there in the hotel and they fire back. Now, I apologize. I am going to go back into some of my footage and try to get more stills because Michael Bay was one of these goons. However, it is really hard to get a clear shot of their face because Luis Guzman is one of the other ones. And same thing. I am going to go back. I'm just going to go through with a fine tooth comb and I promise I'll try to get you guys some screenshots. So now Guerrero has been kidnapped by these guys. Gina and Trudy run downstairs. They both look fabulous, by the way. Run downstairs. However, it's too late. They have no idea where they've gone with Guerrero. And now keep that in mind that Guerrero knows about the consulate. And then he also knows the address of the safe house that Hector Sandoval is staying at. So with all that in mind, OCB, the Vice Squad, meets back and they want to talk about Sandoval's next event. However, they really don't want him to do it, but he is adamant, adamant, adamant that he will not skip this event. This is where he's going to be reciting one of his poems and receiving an award. However, I have this clip saved. It does not have anything to do currently with Sandoval and his awards. This is the most 1980s Miami dialogue I have ever heard. I could not stop laughing. Death Squad's car's been spotted. It's parked off the coast road by the Sheik's mansion. Oh, yeah, I know the place. Let's see. He bought that and never moved in. Death Squad's probably holding Guerrero there. Oh, man. What a Miami sentence. A uninhabited Sheik's mansion that the Death Squad has brought their ransom victim to. But let's uh, lend the mood a little bit because we are going to the award ceremony. This is the whole point is that he wanted to receive his accolades. He wanted to read his poem. And so we're in an audience full with what seems to be a mixture of students and adults. And the poem 
I can't really remember much of it, but it did. I did enjoy the poem when I listened to the episode and when I was cutting the media for it. There is one guy in the audience who reaches for something in his bag. He is instantly escorted out of his seat, and I'm assuming outside of the hall by Crockett and the rest of the vice squad, and I believe there's one Dade cop as well. And I didn't capture all of the poem. I just captured part of it. But it really did resonate with the audience. And also, I love that he's reading from a yellow legal pad because that's what I write with. And Pamela Anderson actually turned me on to that. She said that she loved to write with yellow legal pads because you just keep going and going and going. And I was like, hey, you know what? It actually works. And here's the uh, part from his poem that I really enjoyed. Down under the weights And the rains came And the mud And they sank In the land which they could not possess Upon the earth Which they did not create And now we're transitioning from that scene. We're getting all the audience feedback. Everybody's loving it. Then we are going to the death squad and the torture of Guerrero. We see these two speakers set up by his head and his head um, is covered in just what appears to be a black sack. And we see the vice squad. And again, I'm assuming SWAT run into this mansion. And again, they're questioning Guerrero and playing insanely loud music. They've obviously beaten him up because you can see once the mask gets pulled, or sorry, once the covering gets pulled, he has blood and cuts everywhere. And of course, his eardrums are probably blown to pieces. And I was kind of wondering about the bedside manner in this situation. So if someone has just been tortured with loud music repeatedly, basically they yank, like once the vice squad comes to save him, they yank it off. So again, he doesn't know what any of these people are. And again, Switek is just kind of like in his face, like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. Number one, this guy's probably deaf. Number two, or he's definitely lost his hearing for at least a little bit, or he's probably suffering from tinnitus. And just like the demeanor is so scary. I would be frightened. I'd be scared. I would have peed my pants at this point. So I wonder what the decorum is. Like, maybe do you write it down and do you like show your badge, but they're undercover. So I don't know. In that situation, I would have been more scared. I would have been like, no, more people are capturing me. Leave me alone. And then they don't cut the music. So it's still that loud music blaring in the background while they're rescuing him. So that is a complete mind trip. Well, now that Guerrero is safe and sound, they have brought him to our favorite hospital, Miami Vice. Why, yes, it is the Purple Hospital from Junk Love. And they're grilling him. They're, you know, why was he taken? How do they know he was here? What are his connections at home? Is he on the right? Is he on the left? And again, it devolves into a little bit of racism on the part of Sunny, calling it... Um, actually, I'm not going to repeat that phrase. The phrase in the episode. Um politics he's saying in an unkind way he's saying it in like a definitely a racialized way that he would not speak about western european politics let's put it that way and once again we're kind of getting into a topic that they just don't really have enough room to address in this next clip wouldn't it be because you support leftist guerrillas with your own personal funds i guess i can expect no more protection from you this is America, pal. You can expect the same protection any citizen has a right to. And Blanca brings up a really good point. Once again, when he throws that kind of like racialized 
um, statement at them, she responds back that, yeah, you know, America doesn't play that way at home, but they definitely export it abroad, which is a very tough and complicated subject that I am slightly educated in, not 100% educated in, but there is enough American foreign policy that I learned just from like my brief studies that there definitely is an effect and I'm not talking down or I'm not criticizing every single situation, but I am saying I understand 100% how she can perceive that because she has lived it first and in her country when the United States does have a hand to play in certain elections or installations of government, it does um, definitely change the perception of American politics abroad. So I really like where this episode is going. I just don't really think that they have the tools to do it. And it's very tough because, again, at this time, especially with Cold War politics, anything left is considered communist and anything right is considered, you know, standard conservative Reaganomic America. And like, obviously, now that is definitely different. But um, you also have to think about it with the backdrop of the Cold War happening. So, again, we were moved almost 40 years from this. So it's kind of a little bit of a time trip. Now, let's get back to Sandoval. Where is he? Because Vice gets news that Sandoval has slipped security. And then Blanca tells them that she gave him her gun because he wanted one and remember that Crockett and Tubbs refused to give him one. So Sandoval goes where any political dignitary would go in Miami. He goes to a punk rock club where Suicidal Tendencies is actually playing live at this club. And please go check the gallery whenever you can because there are some crazy fun outfits even with the smoke in the background and even with the what looks to be like latex glove covered fake hands hanging above the bar and the bartender just wearing like full on like a leather linebacker uniform it is amazing but let's get to the musical guest of this episode suicidal tendencies no i do you have to stand all right you have found me oh i read your stuff i'm not kidding i used to read it all the time cloud cities oh that was my favorite so this beautiful girl comes up to him, is chatting with him, and then after they talk, he tries to dance with her, and another guy comes in, kind of like, no, 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 like her boyfriend, and the facial hair on this guy, like five different lines shaved into his face on the side. Again, you have to see this at the gallery. Then he tries to grab another girl, not having it, and this is after he was yelling at the bartender for drinks, is able to pull himself up, like push himself up and get the momentum and then pulls out a gun, and then the lady is also commenting on the gun, and I was like, I do not know in what world this behavior is being tolerated at. Then, after all this, after he doesn't get his dance and he's getting really flustered, he shoots his gun up in the air in this nightclub. And obviously, like people are screaming and running out, the band stops playing. Then, surprisingly, he's not being beaten or arrested at this time. Then he's just out on the sidewalk, kind of being left to his own devices, again, trying to shoot at the streetlights when Crockett and Tubbs come and intercept him and grab the gun away from him. This scene is really nice when Crockett and Tubbs are talking to him because they're trying to relate to him on a human level. And again, yes, they understand he's out of jail. He wants to see his friends. He has friends in Miami. 
But at the end of the day, his testimony in Congress could really help bring aid to his country under the auspices of this civil war. And he could bring order and change. So I think it's really difficult that he doesn't want to shirk his responsibilities completely, but he also doesn't really want to embrace them. And um, Sandoval, same. I'm forced to be a hero, not a poet. I must stand for something that makes me worth killing. And what makes it worth living? Oof, and it was actually a very long scene, and he mentions that the government burned his manuscript, and that was his duty to write the manuscript, that he's lost his love of words, and that, you know, his identity is being challenged, where he was just a poet, and now he is forced to be this hero and this symbol that has complicated his life completely. So, yeah, it's actually a very touching scene, and while we're kind of already in this deep emotional state, Blanca, she's at Guerrero's bedside in the hospital. Blanca gets a call that her father is drunk. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. And needs a ride and has to help her to pick her up. So what's interesting is that it's hospital security calling. The gentleman who's calling is the same gentleman from the airport, the same gentleman from the consulate, This doesn't look good. And then as we transition back to the precinct at OCB, where Sandoval gets brought in to OCB, Castillo has some information on Guerrero that is quite surprising to Crockett and Tubbs in this next clip. Washington says Guerrero's not a civilian. He's a highly placed, highly motivated operative from the left in Sandoval's country. Beautiful. Well, that could explain his interest in Sandoval, huh? He specializes in difficult assassinations. I thought it was the right that was out to get Sandoval, not the left. Left wants to make him a martyr. So if the right goes ahead and kills him, Guerrero doesn't get his hands dirty. This is interesting for them to break down. So basically both sides benefit from Sandoval's death or assassination in some way that they can frame it and use it within their political scope. And so Sandoval has not heard this news yet because at the same time, he's getting a call at OCB that Blanca, his daughter, has been kidnapped and that they want to meet no cops. Sandoval makes up his mind right then and there what he wants to do. Did you agree? I have no choice. An old life for a young one. Oh, man. And naturally, Sandoval is being stubborn. He really doesn't want to risk his daughter's life. He doesn't want any police involvement. He doesn't want any helicopters. He's yelling at them. Finally, able later on, they're able to kind of get through to him and they're able to keep an eye on him while he's going in to make this, in his eyes, exchange. Now, I love the SUV that Crockett and Tubbs are waiting in. With the big bright lights, obviously they're not illuminated yet, but like you can see it's one of those beach SUVs. And then we have Zito and Switek, who are, I believe, sniping? Because you'll see later on in the scene, I was like, oh wow, like they are set up. So it's interesting what the roles are for this scene, basically for this kidnapping for to get his daughter back. So he goes up. 
they're keeping an eye on him through night vision. So everything's kind of green in the scene. And as he is going up the sand, he talks to one of the henchmen. Henchwoman, as we say. That doesn't really go well. The henchwoman is shot. Zito and Zwitek, very good aim. I believe it is Zwitek making the shot because I have a really good look. So I have a really good photo of Zito just looking like very squinty, but it's very much blue steel. But I think because of the bright lights of the SUV, once everything gets triggered, is so blinding. And so when they make that shot, the lights on the SUV have illuminated. It's just like, oh, you know, you can only see the squiggles and you're like, oh, I can only see dark spots of squiggles. Nothing else is getting in there. And so obviously after the henchwoman is killed, the plans have become a little bit awry. And so uh, once Crockett and Tubbs, they have to announce themselves and then they kind of run into the house. They follow and make sure that Sandoval doesn't get killed. We do kind of see the side of Luis Guzman's face. It is really hard for me to find a still of Michael Bay. I will go back. I will go through the footage tomorrow when I'm looking for social media and I will try very hard to get a still of Michael Bay. He's going to be so baby-faced. And obviously you can kind of tell like he has a long face. I should be able to kind of pick out very easily. And so naturally as this shootout occurs, you see basically two of the goons fall down onto this mattress as you see Sandoval kind of like raise his hands, protecting himself. But you also see Blanca kind of fall to the mattress. And she's wearing that silver top that I like, the one that she kind of uh, got a little bit direct with Tubbs in. She's still wearing that. And luckily she's able to shake when she realizes that her kidnappers are dead. She wakes up, she's reunited with her father. And as they go outside and they start talking, Guerrero comes out to meet them. And they're kind of excited. They're really excited to see him. And again, Vice is not seeing him come up to Sandoval and Blanca. I have business with you, Hector. It will be you, Guerrero, huh? <laughs> I should have known. Manuel, no! I've always loved you both. Damn, I thought I had that whole scene recorded. So let me fill that in. So he says, I always loved you both and that you lost your soul when you sold it to the revolution. At this time, Croc and Tubbs come to the rescue, shoot Guerrero, and Sandoval and Blanca are really thankful to be alive. A little bit earlier in the scene, Blanca says that she admires that he was about to do the trade, you know, his life for her life, because she doesn't know if she would do the same. And they're able to kind of bond and connect a little bit more. And this song is playing in the background. This is a very uh, apropos, appropriate song by fellow Canadian Bruce Coburn. Don't let the system fool you. All they want to do is rule you. Pay attention to the poet. You need him and you know it. And as we end on that freeze frame, let me go over the lyrics again. Don't let the system fool you. All it wants to do is rule you. Pay attention to the poet. You need him and you know it. Put him up against the wall. Shoot him up with pentothal. Shoot him up with lead. You won't call back what's been said. Put him in the ground, but one day you'll look around. There'll be a face you don't know, voicing thoughts you've heard before. Interesting. One interesting way to end this episode. 
And now let's lighten the mood a little bit. Ah, uh, only a little bit of iced tea today. Nothing super hot. But obviously, let's start with Bianca Jagger. I kept saying in very Julia Fox voice, Bianca Jagger. No, Bianca Jagger. But again, that is not her born name. Her actual first name was Blanca, not Bianca. And when she was 16, she changed her name. She was born and raised in Nicaragua. And then she received a scholarship to study in France. She met Mick Jones backstage at a concert in France, maybe while she was a student. I can't really tell what the timeline. Got pregnant shortly thereafter with their daughter, Jade. She was his first legal wife. Then he cheated on her with Jerry Hall, his other ex-wife, who was also Rupert Murdoch's ex-wife. And she is always said, because she is so renowned for her wedding day outfit, which is the white skirt suit that she looked like a million dollars in that unfortunately her marriage end on the same day as her wedding but she is very well known as an activist as a fundraiser and she was very prominent in the studio 54 days in new york friends with andy warhol so it seems like a super cool lady altogether but i can't really find a lot of scandal on her but you know i guess she lived her scandal early on now she's chilling out. And Burn Piven, he was, of course, Sandoval, of course, not Latino. It's like the second episode in a row. I was like, oh, you guys, whatever. Again, this is Jeremy Piven's dad, born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, but naturally popular, active within, you know, the, the East Coast theater scene. It is funny. My note that he was also playing a Latino character on Magnum P.I. as well as Miami Vice. And then other one of his credits, Rabbi, like he could just play anything, which I think is very true because he just has that face. And you can see Jeremy's inherited a little bit of it. And there's not a lot of great things I've heard about Jeremy Piven. And I don't know if people just conflate his character from Entourage into who he is as a person, but I've heard both. But I will give Jeremy Piven credit. I recently saw a commercial for hair plugs that he was in because obviously you could tell if you see anything in the 90s he was in heat as the vet who does surgery and his hairline is super receded then when you see him in entourage it's all the way grown back so i was really appreciative of a man being open and honest about hair plugs and hair replacement treatment because you know it's kind of something that a lot of men feel like they have to do in shame and they shouldn't you know unfortunately it is genetic and yeah if you have the money and you have the time and the resources why not fix it so to each their own, you know, you want to judge women for their plastic surgery choices. Why? To each their own. Oh, wow. This episode has a lot. So I'm going to try to get through them quickly. Let's start with wild cards. Obviously, my wild card, I'm a little bit tied as a bartender and then also as a woman. I'm torn between the lady in the blue string bikini with the giant dog walking through an indoor hotel bar with this giant dog and also with the bartender in this insane warrior shoulder pad studded getup. I cannot get over both of it. And of course, the bartender is shirtless with jeans on, but shirtless with this leather getup. Those are my wild card choices. Best facial hair. I'm going to give it to my to my boy with multiple lines faded into his mutton chops to the side of his face. And then if we want to get a little bit more serious... My other best dressed accessory was going to be definitely Blanca's chain-linked earrings. I love 
this is going back to wild cards, sorry, these are not in order. The man and the woman talking at the punk rock club with basically almost identical hairstyle, just a little bit differing in the shades. Then I also really like the women dressed in pink and gold chatting with Sandoval at his gala. And I love, 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 this might be my female best dress because I was going to put Gina and Trudy in there in their supposed stewardess's dress or flight attendant dress. But I really love the gray suit with the multi-strand pearl necklace that the woman is wearing at the gala. And then best dressed men, best dressed man, I have to give it to our man Crockett for being able to match with the cabinet. In some shots, it's the cabinet. In some shots, it's the paint, I guess, just depending on the lighting. But that lavender and the white combo is really working for our man Crockett. This whole episode was just a blast fashion-wide. And obviously, Bianca Jagger, in her first scene, I really liked, obviously, a little bit over the top, but of course, she's going to be the cover art for this episode. But I also really like the white dress where she daintily dies. And even, I can barely also see the shot in that scene, which I think is very funny. You can't really see the gunshot of which she is dying on the floor. And as we wrap up this episode, I just want to thank each and every one of you for following, for subscribing, for liking, for telling your friends. You can find me on every platform and everywhere you can get your podcasts. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. When I say us, I mean me. It's a one-woman show over here. Find me on Spotify, Stitch, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do not see the platform of your choice listed, please reach out to me and let me know, and I can submit my RSS feed to them, so hopefully to make it as easy as possible so you can listen. Now, let's talk music. So we have Nancy Allen's Allemand de Courant that was playing in the art gallery. Kind of a little boring. Then we get to Feel It Again by Honeymoon Suite, the first CanCon song. That's when Gina and Trudy are doing surveillance in the indoor hotel with the giant dog. Then we have Institutionalized by Suicidal Tendencies that they're actually performing on the show, which I think is super cool. I love how they kind of just like wrote that in there because it's not really, I guess they do kind of fit it in. Sandoval really wants to get out there and do something different and blow some off, some steam off. So why not go to a punk club? And then the last song was that Bruce Coburn. Um, I just had it. Maybe the poet is the name of the song. And those were the lyrics I was reading off. And it's tough because deep down my heart, I want to say Feel It Again by Honeymoon Sweep because that song has very much been with me through breakups or what have you when you're kind of feeling dejected. Will this ever happen again? And then you remember falling in love and dating and all that excitement. You remember how good it feels and how good it feels to feel it again. So the emo part of me wants to go with Honeymoon Suite then part of me also wants to go with Institutionalized by Suicidal Tendencies but then I also really like the lyrical prose and how thematically well maybe the poet fit in with the theme of the episode it's hard I want to say I'm going to have the CanCon songs come number two because otherwise I'm definitely going to be biased we need to say number one Institutionalized by Suicidal Tendencies because they were actually there in the episode so kudos to them Thank you again for joining me on this adventure as we broke down Freeverse. We have two more episodes left of season two. I look forward to joining you each and every Friday to break down every episode of Miami Vice. You can follow me at Vice and Easy Podcast on all things social. Give me a like, give me a follow, give me a subscribe, whatever you feel is fair. Maybe a five-star review. And as always... Hey man, Miami Vice is number one new show.